One of the great joys of being part of any work of justice and mercy is the people you get to work alongside. For me, serving with the Christian Alliance for Orphans, I absolutely love the men and women I get to work alongside every week, some of the finest in the world. One of those I especially respect is Beth Guckenberger, who leads back-to-back ministries with her husband Todd. Beth and Todd both possess a rare spiritual depth and wisdom, refined by nearly two decades serving orphans in Mexico and now other parts of the world too. They lead back-to-back with a deep commitment to excellence and continual improvement, and they share everything they learn with a beautiful open-handedness with every organization in the Christian Alliance for Orphans and beyond. But what especially strikes me is that alongside all this weighty wisdom, Beth and Todd have kept buoyant hearts and bright eyes Even in very hard places where they've served year after year, they have ready smiles and contagious laughter. And to be honest, Beth and Todd are the kind of people I hope to be when I'm their age a few years down the road. So I'm especially glad that you get to listen in on this conversation with Beth, where she shares some of the habits and commitments that have shaped her and Todd and helped to keep their hearts near to each other and to Christ in the long journey. to Justice and the Inner Life, presented by the Christian Alliance for Orphans. We'll explore what it takes to sustain a heart of justice and mercy over a lifetime. Here's your host, Jed Medifin. You know, Beth, from everything I know of you, you are not a halfway person. Um, when you and Todd started caring about orphans, you ended up moving your family to Mexico to serve. You've also adopted and fostered a bunch of precious kids over the years. And now you are really touching lives of orphans all over the world through back to back. So just let's, let's look backward for a moment. Give us a glimpse of what's first sparked all this. You know, I, I think about the first time I really interacted uh, with an orphan. It was just a short afternoon on a mission trip with the ministry of crew to Albania. And I, I realize now it was an afterthought of somebody's. It wasn't even part of our schedule, but it made an impression so much so that years later, when uh, Todd and I were leading a high school uh, mission trip to Mexico, we were one day partnering with this church, painting a wall around that church from blue to green. And I'm pretty sure the year before we'd painted it from green to blue. And I knew that missions could have more meaning than what it was we were experiencing. And uh, Todd and I looked at each other halfway through the day and thought, do you think there's any orphanages in this city? And can we go see what God's maybe doing there and how we might be able to help them? So we got in a taxi cab and found an orphanage and said to that man, we have three things in our hand. We have about 200 U.S. dollars, 20 able-bodied high school kids, and one complete day in our trip. If you had access to those resources, what would you do with them? And really, that's how every day has started for the last 20 years, You know, figuring out what it is that we have in our hand anywhere around the world, finding folks who are full-time caring for orphans and vulnerable children, and figuring out how to use those resources to their ultimate benefit. And, and so I, I know this has been... This has been a 20-year journey, so many twists and turns, both personally in your own home and family, and, and then through back-to-back, back back, even evolution of your own approach. I know you're working with foster care in Mexico now, really innovating things there. And But just kind of looking over the sweep of these 20 years, when you know, and then starting that first day, would you say it's been harder than you thought it would be? <laughs> Absolutely. Um, 
You know, we uh, the next year after that day, we moved uh, to Mexico in the summer of 97 and um, lived there for the next 15 years. And I, I think right away I was already kind of prepared for like what I thought was missionary life. Like the culture will be different and the language we'd have to learn and the, the climate was different. So those pieces weren't harder than I thought they would be. That's exactly what I thought it would be. But I was not prepared for relational challenges and spiritual warfare and I kind of thought if you were doing God's work that he just put this sweet little bubble over you and it all went well because he was so pleased with what, how you had chosen to live your life. But it turns out broken people are all over the place and it turns out I'm the most broken of them all. And when I realized that God um, wanted to grow me up in some ways, I, I just wasn't totally anticipating that. So watching the way that hurt people hurt people and watching the way the enemy got his foothold and different storylines where there was doubt or discouragement or distrust. That's the stuff I wasn't totally sure was going to be a part of this, but mm. but I had to grow up through. Yeah, I, I so identify with that. And it's, it's interesting how you, as you come closer to the world's brokenness, not only do you become more aware of the brokenness out there, but also the brokenness in, in us, you know, the, oh, the selfishness yeah. and the irritability and all of the just uh, disappointing truths about ourselves that come out when we're in those high intensity situations. Absolutely. I mean, I, I, I didn't realize how much um, growing up I had to do, even though I was a college educated adult in a healthy marriage, I still had so much of my life that when when the pressure cooker came into it, um, certainly my weaknesses surfaced and it was, it was an opportunity for the Lord to work on those weaknesses and then demonstrate his strength through my weaknesses as I learned lessons in reconciliation and I learned lessons in repentance and confession and I learned lessons in humility. And so I think, I think those were some of the surprises for me uh, in the last 20 years. Tell us about one of the low points along the way. I'm, I'm sure there are many, but can, yes. you, can you just dig into one and just lay it out there for us? Yeah, you know, um, you hinted at it a little bit. Our organization has evolved over time. In the beginning, we were just meeting physical needs. And then when our language caught up, we added a spiritual context to those physical needs. And then eventually kind of the next phase of the organization um you know, about three or four years into it, we realized we've got to provide what we might consider like foster families, these family-like settings for high school and college age or emancipated youth to live in so they can learn how to be in a family and we can pay for them to go through um, at whatever level of education they're capable of all the way through their bachelor's degree. And we set it up and it felt to me like any kid would love to do this. They're going to have, you know, a great bed and, and consistent nutrition and educational opportunity and and it was a shock to me when um, our first older boy ran away and I was just crushed like how could I make this landing any softer for you how could you not want this and I realized um, I mean I good counsel from the rest of our teammates when I was just devastated that Edgar had left um, that that the safety of that that place we had created for him and we worked hard to create for him and uh, swam the, the river and went up to Texas for a season. And I was realizing that I actually wasn't his shelter. I had somehow in that Psalm 91, one verse that talks about how the Lord is our shelter. I had replaced the Lord's shelter with me. I thought I was his shelter. So in, in my absence, I thought he'll be unsheltered and what's going to happen to him. And he's out there in the world. And, and what, and I, I took it personally, like he was rejecting us and, 
I had a lot to learn, really, about the nature of the trauma he had experienced in life and the kind of questions he was getting answered that I wasn't even addressing. And the fact that the Lord had loved him long before I came on the scene and has a plan for him long after I'm on the scene and that I can trust God with with not only Edgar's life, but all the rest of the kids that we serve. Hmm. Amen to that. that. Yeah. So Beth, just, I mean, that's, I know it's just one story of probably a couple hundred that if you dug deep enough, you could come up with. What what do you feel has been most significant in sustaining you through all of this? You know, through beautiful things, but also so many painful things and times of exhaustion and disappointment and and so much beside that. That's a great question. You know, I think, um, I think there's a couple things that, that serve as like, legs on a stool that help keep um, me propped up over the marathon of which this has been. Certainly the most critical aspect is my growing understanding of God's sovereignty um, and my willingness to lose control or to have to never have control in the first place of what it is God's going to do in a particular area. To just see myself as a vessel, to be faithful and available and obedient, and then realize that God might grow something bigger than I thought not as big as I imagined, in a different direction, with different people. Like just that sense of daily obedience and and not um, just his overall sovereignty. I think that's for sure that my understanding of God's sovereignty is the most critical tool in my tool belt. But um, also my marriage, you know, having a healthy marriage and a place that, um, and a person in my life that understands where I'm coming from, understands the pressures or challenges or fears that I have, and um, that wants to be more than a co-laborer with me. I think for a lot of people in orphan care ministry, their spouse is their is their partner. They co-labor together, especially if they're on the foreign field. And Todd and I realized pretty quickly that he couldn't be everything and that there was a point in the day, every day, where we were going to need to have to just be spouses, not co-parents, not co-laborers. Uh, we were just going to have to be spouses and to be really intentional about carving out that time so that we could, you know, enjoy uh, whatever it is that we were going to be doing in that particular day with our time. And I, I think that deep breath every day I recognize now has been a way that has been like a pressure release for me so that 24 hours a day, even though, you know, certainly for so for so long, orphans were a part of every hour of every day that there would be this like space where, um, there be an emotional and mental break from that. I really track with that, Beth. When you're neck deep in ministry, in pouring out, it can be so hard to carve out time to be together without distraction. I know for Rachel and me, that is often one of the first things we let go of when we're overwhelmed by all that needs doing. And yet, without those intentional moments to connect, to process life together, to pray together, a marriage can become dry and functional so quickly. And I also think just having heart friends as as teammates and making sure you either recruit your heart friends to be your teammates or your teammates become your heart friends. But having the kind of people that you're in the the battle with that believe the best in you and that fight for you and challenge you and encourage you and come for you and um, having that kind of um, support really has been super critical. On all the days I don't want to do it anymore, they're around me telling me um, why it's the most important way we could spend our day. And on all the days that they get discouraged, I'm right there to remind them where God's been and where he's headed. And so I, I just love that idea of being on a team and not trying to do it alone. 
That's gold. Yes. And, and you just, you, you, you look and see so clearly we were made for relationships. We were wired yeah. for intimacy for first with our creator and then with each other. And it sounds like kind of everything you're saying in some way boils down to that, that, that element connection, relationship, intimacy, first with our heavenly father and then with Todd, your spouse, and then, then with others who are, uh, God put there to, to walk this journey with you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, and I think, Especially, you know, in the kind of world that we're living in with orphans, I want to do so much more, as I know your listeners do, than just feed them or just educate them. I want to teach them about how to integrate themselves in healthy relationships, maybe eventually a romantic relationship as they grow or, or parental relationship or certainly co-working relationships or neighborly relationships or extended family relationships. And so I need to keep growing in those areas too. I need to know what it looks like to fight and make up and what it looks like to inconvenience myself for somebody else and what it looks like to get to know someone um, and let them into a, and be vulnerable and, and have accountability. And so the more I'm practicing those things in my own life, really the better equipped I am to lead kids who've never seen that before into a life like that. That really reminds what, you know, as we wade into these these broken places, whether it is with orphans or whether it's with, with broken families or perhaps other issues in this world, addiction or HIV or hunger, poverty, relationship is at the core of that. There's broken relationships at almost every, at the center of every one of those situations. And so, if we're coming into those hoping to bring a touch of, of grace, of healing, of encouragement, um, if we're coming from a place where our own relationships are not whole and healthy, not, not that they'll ever be perfect, but if, if there's not a, a core health there first in our creation, our relationship with our Father in heaven and then with others, how can we offer the, the life and the encouragement and the hope that, that we're hoping to bring into these, these hurting places? Yeah, and I, you know, I think the Bible talks really clearly that we're to be a kingdom of priests, which means that when someone interacts with me, I want them to know more about Jesus at the end of that interaction, not more about me. And so, you know, the, the challenge for me then is when I'm, when I'm spending time with a person that's from a hurt place, which of course I am too, I gotta think, okay, well, my own resources in the area of patience or, or self-control or joy or love or, gentleness or something i mean they they run out at some point like i'm only up to a certain point a good person and then there's nothing left and so i need to realize okay in that moment i need to confess where i'm weak to the lord allow the indwelling of that holy spirit to manifest itself in a way that i can be patient with people long after my own natural reserves are gone or i can be self-controlled or gentle or kind or, or joyful or whatever and then if, as, as someone else on the other end of that relationship experiences that through me, they now know a little bit more about Jesus. And, you know, I'm always saying to, to especially people that are just starting out, you want to make sure that when you serve someone, in, especially in a foreign setting, that they walk away with whatever it is that you've just offered to them, grateful to Jesus and not to you. That's how you know you've done it in a way that's um, healthy, that when they re- when they're on the receiving end of whatever it is you're offering they are so grateful to Jesus and not just indebted to you one of the things beth that i i so appreciate about you and todd is that you haven't just 
persevered. You know, you're not just, you haven't succeeded in 20 years of running programs, but, but that really when people are with you, they do feel like they're in the presence of Christ. And I know you'd be the first to say you're not perfect, but, but I, no. I see that. I've, you know, been down at your programs in Mexico. I've seen your eyes light up when, uh, mm-hmm. you know, a little girl who doesn't have a mom and dad comes in the room and, and you reflect to her I think a a sense of that love that you are continually receiving from your heavenly Father. Mm-hmm. So I, I want to ask, what are the specific, or just maybe perhaps a few specific examples of things that you seek to cultivate in your life, and, and maybe habits or practices that have helped you cultivate the kind of inner life that then spills out in, in that kind of uh, light in your eyes over, over mm. all these years? Yeah, that's a great question, Jed. I think, I think for me, the overall umbrella is that I don't see orphans and vulnerable children as a cause. I think it would be too daunting. I think... Um, I think I would feel like, have I moved the needle and is, is this even count or I'm overwhelmed and uh, there would be, it would be a fast track to burnout. I think if I looked at the movement as a cause, I really honestly look at them as individual children who's, who I know and have a relationship with. And so when I do walk into a room, uh, you know, especially if I walk into an orphanage and there's a massive rec room and there's 50 kids, I don't necessarily think about 50 kids. I think about one or two children who are kind of right there at my knee and invest in those few children, recognizing that maybe it's my job to call other people to hang out with the other 47 or equip caregivers to care better for the other 47. But So well said, Beth. I know for me, when I focus on the big numbers, the big needs, whether it's large statistics or even just all the kids in a single room, it can be paralyzing. But in each moment, I know God invites us to just one thing, to one task, to love the one person he puts in front of us. It's not my responsibility to take care of everyone. It's my responsibility to invest in the life of those that are right there at my knee. And I think seeing orphans and vulnerable children as primarily children and children with whom I can interact with just always makes it clear to me. It makes It's just such a good winnowing fork to me when I'm trying to consider a decision or a dollar investment or a program initiation or a any decision I think not about the big picture. I honestly think about this kid and this child and what is best for them. And that helps me. Um, it just helps put gas in the tank. But I think also, you know, in the very beginning, I would wake up, you know, 20 years ago, I'd wake up, I'd be at the children's home by breakfast, I'd be there till bedtime, and I would go home, and it was really easy to spend really the vast majority of my day in the presence of children. But I don't know who will be listening um, in your audience, but the truth is, over time, you rise in leadership opportunities, and you could spend more time organizing what's going on than actually participating in what's going on. And for me, it's just been really critical that I... I talk to orphans more than I talk about them, that I'm making sure that I'm in in face-to-face the lives of kids, even if that means other areas of my organizational responsibilities get put on hold or get slowed down. I think I would have run out of of energy a long time ago if I had just kind of been, again, talking about the big picture and not talking about people with whom I'm in relationship with. And, but ultimately, I think it goes without saying that um, when I first moved to Mexico, the only orphan verse in the Bible I really knew was James one twenty seven about taking care of widows and orphans in their distress. But pretty fast after I got there, I was like, 
there's got to be more that I can hang my hat on. Um, and, and of course, you know, throughout scripture, there's dozens and dozens of promises he's made to that specific population and meditating on those, realizing that he's going to come for them and hear them and lift them up and be their father and execute true justice on their behalf and make them a home. And, you know, those verses, that's just such a comfort to me to realize he's going to do that. And he wants to use human vessels to execute those promises. So anytime I have to ever align my strategic plan or even my agenda or to-do list up against his, I just want to make sure those are the kinds of things I'm spending my time doing. Cause then I know for sure I'm right in the center of God's will. Thank you, Beth. Now thinking back 20 years, it was you and Todd, and now you lead this great team of folks who are all over the world on multiple continents, and yet you still want to help each one of them cultivate that same kind of heart, the, the things you're talking about that are drawing mm-hmm. deeply from their Heavenly Father uh, with a view of His authority and power and life overall, of His love for each of us, and then seeing each child that is served as, as an individual, not just part of a big machine or program. But how do you help your team cultivate those things? And, and maybe specifically, are there particular spiritual disciplines and practices that you do together as back-to-back the team that seek to cultivate that kind of heart in the whole back-to-back community? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, part of it is just modeling that in leadership. We talk a lot about what self-care looks like and um, how to have a healthy finger on the pulse of your own emotional stability, how to be in the kind of relationships that um, people are reflecting back to you what your reality is. Um, We talk a lot about the importance of biblical in-depth study and how you don't just want to go to your Bible to, to find something f- to prepare for, for the next kind of ministry responsibility you have to execute, but to f- go to your Bible and look for it like a treasure. And, you know, the Bible talks about how it's sweet to the taste. It's like honey. And we tell people there's a lot of counterfeit affections out there. There's a lot of things that seem like they might be sweet to the taste, but they don't, they're not going to endure like, like scripture does. And so, Uh, We definitely spend a lot of intentional time encouraging our entire staff to spend time in the Word so they have Bible studies and they have opportunities um, and space, really, for that in-depth study, whether they travel to go take classes or, um, you know, spend time in the Holy Land or they spend time in conferences. Just cultivating their own spiritual inner life to us is really important. And in marriage, you know, a lot of people leave the mission field, not because they've run out of support, not because it's not the right place for their kids. They leave because they have broken relationships. So part of what we really emphasize is get your own house in order, whatever that takes. Get your marriage in order, your relationships with your children in order, your your uh, co-workers. Don't operate with a, with a limp because eventually someone's going to fall. And so Todd and I openly talk frequently um, in global employment meetings about what our practices are and the things that we do to have short accounts with each other and the people that we're accountable to and the kinds of questions they ask us and the kinds of ways that that hurts when they ask those questions and the ways we've grown through that. Just really wanting to model um, what healthy marriage looks like and and encouraging, you know, staff sites to do marriage retreats and date nights and babysit for each other and Um, invest in those kind of resources. That's good, Beth. Really good. A withered marriage will always wither our ministry over time. 
But I've seen that a vibrant marriage in Christ not only can sustain us, but also spills life into the people we serve as well. And I just, I just love how Back to Back is very intentional about encouraging and helping your team invest in their marriages. And I, I see a lot of intentionality in this and, and just how you seek to serve your team generally. It seems like you're always finding ways to help them grow in their marriages and their spiritual life and also in other knowledge and skills for their work as well. We talk a lot about um, how important it is for us to maintain that student-like curiosity and how um, to be curious about the things that they're doing. So. They thought they knew everything there was to know about poverty, but the truth is we'll never understand poverty. It's always going to be um, more nuanced and layered than, than we currently understand, even if we live in poverty and live in the midst of poverty. Or you think you understand the hurt child because you know some hurt child or you've had some um, good experiences with hurt children, you've had some training, but the truth is there's no end to what it takes to understand child development and human interaction. And you think you understand what you need to know about, you know, what, whatever subject it is, we're always telling our staff, like, just be curious, be as curious as you can, learn what you can, you know, exchange what you've learned with each other. And um, all of that kind of keeps us one, humble, because we realize what we know this year, we didn't know last year. Man, we thought we knew it all last year. So probably what we think we know t- this year, we really don't know as much as we're going to know, hopefully, in a year from now. And um, help your relationships be as healthy as possible. I love the just the open-handedness of, of all of that, right? Just the, the stance of having your hands open, your heart open, both both in giving freely, but also knowing that we need to continually be receiving, um, as yeah. you were describing a moment ago in, in Scripture, just each morning coming to the Lord with our hands open to receive from Him, and then as we go out into the world, continually curious, continually having our hands open to receive gifts of learning and knowledge and new perspectives from the people around us, in, including those we're serving. Yeah, I remember a couple years ago when we were learning a little bit about trauma and recognizing what a critical skill it is to give and receive love and how we want our children that we serve alongside to not just be recipients of our attention, but also to be givers of that. And last week when I was in one of our sites, um, uh, teenage, uh, developmentally delayed, really mental, very mentally challenged young man is we're working with him. He has a, a half day job in a local um, mall cleaning and we're working towards independent living and life skills and on his way home, I was at his house when he was, when he walked through the door and he's living with a foster family and he gave this little pack of, of gum to his house dad that was equivalent of maybe five cents he bought on the street and he, he had used some of his tips to buy that for his dad and he just whispered to him, we walked in, I, I thought you liked this flavor and I bought it for you. And I was so moved by the fact that he understood not only how to receive what it is that house parent is giving to him, but he knew how to give back to him. And a couple of years ago, when we were learning that concept, we realized, man, as missionaries, it is so, we know how to give, like that's the whole reason we went there. But um, the, the healthiest position we can be in is in a position of exchange. So now I need to think to myself when I go into any community, I don't just want to be a conduit of God's love to other people, but I want to look them in the eye and let them give me a hug, attention, prayer, um, a meal that they're preparing for me. It's not maturity to say, no, 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 you keep it. I don't want that. I don't need anything. That's actually immaturity. It demonstrates maturity when we receive what it is that somebody has to give us, and it gives value to that person. So anyway, mm-hmm. lots of good learning for us and all of that. Oh, let's, let's just talk about perhaps one particular practice 
that has been especially meaningful, whether it's for you individually, you and Todd, uh, or as a team, that, you know, something that you have engaged as a, as a discipline, a chosen practice in order to nurture the kind of things you're talking about, the heart of giving and receiving. Is, is there one particular thing that comes to mind as I ask about that? Yeah, actually, one or two. We have six cultural values, um, invite, share, love, learn, develop, and steward. But invite and share, they're kind of first cousins. Th- that spirit of whatever it is that God's teaching us, we want to give away as liberally as possible to other organizations, other national ministry partners, other wh- whomever. That's really been a um, game changer for us. It was actually at a CAFO a number 2012, I think it was that CAFO that Todd and I had done a little workshop called uh, Taking Your Startup Nonprofit to a Midsize Organization. And we made, you know, 30 packets or something for whoever we thought might come to that workshop. And when we opened the door and hundreds of different people representing lots of organizations were there, we thought to ourselves, oh my, we like, we don't have enough packets and what are we going to do? And Todd stood on the stage and just said, hey, anything we've ever created, any, HR policy or board governance manual or trainings or if, if any of this is helpful to any of you, like you can have any of it. Just take our logo off it. It might not be exactly what you want, but maybe it'll get you farther down the field and get you less time around the table and more time in front of a child. And there was a very specific anointing that fell on us in that season. I, I can trace it all back to that, um, that particular CAFO as we began to exchange information with other organizations who were telling us how they did sponsorship or we were telling them how we were doing staff training and they were telling us how they managed their, um, you know, whatever. What it, This like spirit of sharing um, led us right into this cultural value of, of invitation. Just there's a place for everybody. I think sometimes in orphan care, there's this misconception from people who are outside of it like, you got to be crazy, sell all your stuff and move to a foreign country or adopt a whole bunch of special needs kids. That is the only way you get to make a difference in the orphan care movement. And I, I love the idea that there's all these on-ramps that don't cost quite as much as people expect them to, um, but do make a significant impact in the life of children. And I, I just, I like that spirit of invitation. And I think that's a really important part of our organization and certainly the movement in general. And you, and you see Jesus continually doing that too, in, inviting people to take a step towards him. And as, as we get closer, inviting deeper and, and the adventure is bigger and sometimes the cost bigger than we had imagined at the start, but he allows us to go step by step into that adventure yeah. with him. Yes, for sure. Let's close with this. Um, any any uh, particular words of advice? Looking back, twenty years, the bright-eyed Beth and Todd, um, <laughs> starting out from the start. What, what what's something you would tell yourself now, twenty years later? Hmm. You know, I I whisper it to myself, um, especially if I'm about to walk into a room where I have to introduce what we're doing to someone, or I have to do a training. I think to myself, Beth, be truthful, not impressive, and. Um, I, you know, it's so tempting sometimes to try to be impressive, to make something look better than it really is, or to to just share success stories. But there's a lot of pain in this um, particular area. And I think it's important to be truthful about what's hard so we can all collectively work together towards good solutions and, and might be able to collaborate towards a better uh, ending than one I could do on my own. And I think I would tell that, Beth, like, hey, listen... Don't work so hard at being impressive. Just keep telling the truth about 
how you're growing, what is hard, and inviting people into that story with you. Amen to that. <laughs> <laughs> well, Beth, hey, thanks so much for being part of this this conversation. And um, more than that, thanks so much for what you and Todd and the whole back-to-back team are doing day in and day out. That's, that is the real thing. Thank you, Jed. Thank you for the way that you shepherd the movement. And it's, it's just exciting to see God continuing to call his church. Amen. Bye-bye, Beth. Thanks. Thanks, guys. There's so much wisdom in what Beth shared today. And I can tell you from all I have seen of Beth and Todd, their family, their work, the fruit of these choices is beautiful. It springs from hearts rooted deep in Christ and has lived out in so many of these specific choices that Beth described today. Continual curiosity and learning, open-handedness and sharing with other organizations, not being paralyzed by the mass of need, but focusing on the single person, the single child, and a willingness not only to give, but also to receive from those we serve. I especially appreciate how Beth reminded that our marriage and our friendships with coworkers are truly vital to long-term ministry. Guarding and growing these relationships is not only key to sustaining us for the long haul, the overflow of a healthy marriage and friendships is one of the most important things we can offer to those we serve. It's a tangible picture of what God has made us for and what he wants for each of us. If you'd like to know Beth better, she has a number of excellent books, including her most recent, Start With Amen. Beth will also be speaking at the CAFO 2018 Summit in Dallas, May 9 through 11, 2018. As we wrap up, let me encourage you to take just a moment after the episode ends to consider if there may be just one of the things Beth shared as key ingredients of sustaining vibrant ministry that especially struck you. Consider what little steps you might take to prioritize these things and begin with a prayer right now that God will help you do that starting this week. You've been listening to Justice and the Inner Life with Jed Menefit, a production of the Christian Alliance for Orphans. To learn more about the Alliance, visit CAFO.org.